Good morning, church family. Welcome to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're visiting for your first or second time with us, I'll introduce myself. My name is Chad, and I'm one of the pastors here. (laughs) If you don't know what that's about, I just became a pastor last Sunday, so this will be my first sermon as one of your pastors, and it is a joy and an honor, and uh, I do feel the weight of this office, though, and I take it very seriously. Um, Also, you guys have noticed that we have a lot more kids in here with us. Today, today is a fifth Sunday, and on the, whenever there's a fifth Sunday of the month, we, we give the teachers a break, and we think it's good for the kids to be in here and see mom and dad worship and hear the word of God preached. So welcome to all of you kids, even my own over here, and Haddon and Olson, who I'm in community group with. Welcome to the service. Um, we're going to be diving back into Luke this morning after three weeks off. We had our Pastors Leadership Institute, guys who just graduated, preached the last three weeks, so I hope you all were here for those sermons. If not, you should go back on YouTube or on the podcast and listen to those. I think they did a great job. I think I can speak for you all. They did a wonderful job, and it was a very encouraging and edifying and challenging series. But we're back in Luke this morning. You heard just read chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. And I've titled the sermon, A Great Call and a Great Cost. So before we dive in, join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a joy to gather again with your people, to worship you in spirit and truth, to sing songs to you, and for the edification of each other. And just we acknowledge, Lord, that you have forgiven our sins and reconciled us to yourself through the the perfect life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, as I come to preach your word and your people come to hear it, uh, we just pray that you would help us see a fresh picture of Jesus Christ and and the cost that it takes to follow him, uh, but that it comes with great reward. Lord, we acknowledge the reward even amidst our trials and the costs that uh, a relationship with you and the blessing and joy that that brings and the hope of the perfect blessing and joy of being with you in heaven makes everything in this life on our path to obedience completely worth it. So as your word says, the opening of your word brings light and to the simple it gives understanding. So we pray, Lord, for light and understanding and that we would uh, have a fresh look at how to follow you in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask most of you to walk down memory lane with me. It's going to be for those of you who are married or have been married. So to the kids in here, maybe some of you aspire to be married, you're still going to get the illustration. Do you remember um, the first few months of when you were falling in love with your spouse? Think back with me all those years. Oh, remember, it was sweet. It was a special time. I'm going to make some guesses for you ladies about what you did and what you were thinking. (laughs) But obviously, I'm a little bit more confident with the male perspective. So ladies, maybe when I offer some of these things, throw me a bone, okay? Okay. <clears throat> Guys, as we, were, as we were falling in love with our women, we were hoping to woo you ladies over. 
We shaved our face every time we were gonna see you, even if it was shaving over an already razor-burned face and neck and it hurt and we didn't wanna do it, we did it anyway. We wore our best clothes and maybe we even went out and bought some new clothing, which we don't usually like to do, some nice jeans, some nice shirts. We did our hair. We never used to do our hair. We worked out harder in the gym, hoping you might notice our strength and our manliness. We spent way too much money on those first few dates and your first birthday when we were a couple. Embarrassing amount of money as we look back at it. I hope you guys will give me grace on this one. Whenever we had bubble guts after dinner, we made sure the bubbles stayed in our guts. <laughs> How about you ladies? Maybe you also went out and bought some new clothes, some new makeup, a new hair dryer. Or maybe you just, you didn't buy those things, but you did your makeup more, you did your hair more. It took you longer to get ready for those first few dates and hangouts. Maybe you cooked some new and really difficult and expensive recipes for us the first few times that you cooked for us. Here's the point. When we knew that there would be a great reward, namely falling in love and getting married, we joyfully embraced the cost it took to gain the reward. There was no cost too great. In the same way, we'll see in the text this morning that following Jesus has a cost but the reward makes it infinitely worth it. So let's, I'll remind us of some context before we dive into the passage this morning. Since we took three weeks off, and this passage is actually a big turning point in Luke, I thought it would be good to remind us of what has happened so far in Luke. In the first couple chapters, we saw, we were introduced to Jesus and John the Baptist we saw Jesus prepared for his ministry through his baptism and his temptation. And then from chapter four through chapter nine, we saw his Galilean ministry. In those chapters, chapters four through nine, we saw Jesus doing powerful and authoritative miracles, speaking boldly about who he is. He was proving his identity as the Messiah, the son of God, the king of the upside down kingdom of God. He is God's anointed Messiah who came to usher in the kingdom of God and reverse the curse of sin. And now from chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 19, verse 44, Jesus is on his Jerusalem journey. One commentator subtitles it this way, Jewish rejection and the new way. 49% of this section is unique to Luke. There's a high concentration of teaching and parables. In fact, there are 17 parables, and 15 of them are unique to Luke. We will see great opposition to Jesus in this section. Between chapter 9, 51 through chapter 11, 13, Jesus and his disciples' journey to Jerusalem starts with the disciples learning the basics of discipleship, mission, commitment, love for God, love for one's neighbor, devotion to Jesus and his teaching, and prayer. The thrust of this section, chapter 9, verse 51 through 1944, is this. Jesus gives a new way to follow God, which is not the way of the Jewish leadership. And if you can remember the last couple of sermons that were preached from Luke, we heard from Ryan Farrer and Josh Breffel, 
Ryan preached to the transfiguration. You remember that? We were reminded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the new Moses to whom we should listen. Josh reminded us that Jesus loves us right where we are, but too much to leave us there, and that he's committed to helping us grow in our faith, understanding, humility, and unity. In our text this morning, we will see Jesus continuing to teach his disciples and would-be disciples what it means to follow him, the cost of following him. I believe the main point of the text this morning is this. The call of Christ to follow him with total commitment will come with a great cost and a greater reward. I've split the, the message this morning into two points, and we'll see both points in both sections this morning. So we're going to see, number one, a great call and a great cost in verses 51 through 56. And we're going to see a great call and a great cost in verses 57 through 62. So let's look at this first call and cost, 51 through 56. As I said earlier, Jesus and his disciples have been in and around Galilee for the first nine chapters. But the time has come for him to travel to Jerusalem. So look at verse 51 with me. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Here the shadow of the cross looms closest and darkest over Jesus. And as we've said before in Luke, Jesus' death on the cross has been God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And in Luke 9:22, Jesus says, "The Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke articulates Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension as him being taken up. Jesus knows the time has come for him to die, to rise, and to go back, to ascend back to the Father in heaven. So he, the text says he sets his face to go to Jerusalem that Greek word there just means to place firmly, to set fast, to render constant. As my mom told me when I was a kid working on a hard homework assignment, Chad, you need to put your nose to the grindstone. And that's what Jesus has done. The language is also meant to make the reader, who's familiar with the Old Testament and especially Isaiah, think of one of the messianic prophecies from Isaiah chapter 50. In that passage, the Messiah is speaking of his ill treatment and his rejection, that he would be beaten, his beard would be pulled, his face would be spit on. And verse 7 says this, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. So Jesus knows what's coming. And he sets his determined will on going to the cross to pay a great price for the sins of his people. But before he paid the ultimate cost with his life, there were many small down payments, namely the rejection of many people. Galilee is in the north of Palestine, and Jerusalem is in the south, and Samaria is in between the two. And instead of going the long way around, as we often see in Jesus' ministry, he's determined to go straight through. 
Many of you have heard, probably heard sermons on John chapter 4, Jesus and the woman at the well, and you're probably aware of the relations between Jews and Samaritans. You know that they weren't good. They didn't like each other. Most Jews and Samaritans would not travel through each other's land. They would go the long way around. Jews viewed Samaritans as having an impure bloodline because they were half Jewish, half Gentile. They believed that they had poor theology and they didn't worship in the right place, namely Jerusalem. And Samaritans viewed Jews as elitists with poor theology who didn't worship in the right place, namely Mount Gerizim. And that last point is really important. The big theological debate between them is where is God to be worshipped? Jews say Jerusalem, Samaritans say Mount Gerizim. And in verse 52, Jesus sends messengers ahead of him to a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. This means probably preparations to stay a night or two as they're traveling through. But the text says that the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. The Samaritans wouldn't budge in their theological convictions. If the Jewish Messiah was headed to Jerusalem, in their opinion, he was headed to the wrong place. So they're not going to receive him. They're not going to let him stay there. But when James and John, and if you remember, their nickname is the Sons of Thunder. Maybe this is where they got their nickname. Hear that the town doesn't receive their Lord. Those are fighting words. They put their dukes up. And based on some Old Testament precedent, especially probably Elijah, um, they asked Jesus in verse 54, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's ironic. A couple of scenes ago, they couldn't even cast out a demon. And now they're like, yeah, but now we're ready to call down divine fire and burn these people up. Peter may have recently confessed Jesus as the Christ, but these disciples still have a lot to learn. And praise God that he loves them where they are, but too much to let them stay there. They needed to grow in their understanding, and Jesus calls them to that. They were zealous for Jesus being treated well. We could even say that they were zealous for his glory, and that's a good thing. But their desire for immediate judgment is completely misplaced. And it's above their pay grade, way above their pay grade. It's not their place to exercise or call down divine judgment. So Jesus rebukes them. And we've talked a lot about his tone throughout Luke, and often it's, it's gentle and challenging and inviting, and I'm not going to soften his tone here. And I'm not saying I've done that or the preachers have done that as we've talked about his tone through Luke, but here it says rebuke, and the word means rebuke, a sharp admonition. He is frustrated with them, and he lets them know it. And then, uh, if you're reading in the ESV, which is what most of us read and we preach from, we have a little footnote after it says that he rebuked them, and, and it says, some manuscripts add, you do not know what manner of spirit you are, you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. Whether or not Jesus actually said this in this moment, we know it's something that Jesus would say. John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. And as we've been saying throughout Luke, Jesus' first coming was not to bring final judgment, but to die and to give grace and forgiveness and mercy and save sinners, even Samaritan sinners. So after he rebukes them, they move on to another village, says verse 56. So what is the call and the cost of this scene for us? The call is this. There's two, and, and one is obvious, and a second is maybe less obvious. The first obvious one is this. We still live in a time of mercy, don't we? We're still called to share the gospel with lost people. Now is not the time for divine judgment. We, as followers of Jesus, are called to be merciful messengers. And actually, we're called not just to share the gospel, but our lives. One of my favorite verses from Paul when he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, it says this. Paul says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. We see this throughout Jesus' ministry as well. In his willingness and even his initiation to have table fellowship with sinners and those outside of the accepted social and cultural norms. So I ask you guys personally, who is your Samaritan? Or maybe where is your Samaria? For many of us, conservative Christians, it might be the LGBTQIA++ community. Or for other, others of us, it might be those who are of false religions, Mormons, Muslims, Roman Catholics, or those with different political views. Are you willing to be a merciful messenger to your Samaritan? Would you be so willing to pursue table fellowship with them that if someone were to call down fire on them, you would be burnt up as well? May God give us as a church the grace and love not to react the way that James and John did. First of all, because it's not our place, as I said, it's above our pay grade. And because God gets to be the judge, he has set a day where he will judge mankind solely based on what they believe about his son, Jesus Christ. And that day and time is up to him. But secondly, vindictive judgment should not be our disposition. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about what our disposition towards unbelievers should be, especially opposed to James and John's reaction. Charles Spurgeon says this, if sinners will be condemned... <clears throat> At least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. I cried the first time I read that. Another call the less obvious one may be this. James and John got distracted 
they, they misunderstood or forgot their mission. They forgot who was in charge. Brothers and sisters, as we have seen our culture in America sprinting full force into post-Christian, godless, self-worshipping paganism, it's been frustrating, hasn't it? And I'm only 36 years old, and I feel like I've seen a crazy change, and especially in the last five to 10 years, haven't we? And I think it's okay to say, man, it's frustrating. This is crazy. And whether, and, and many of us, whether we have said it out loud or not, may have had the same thoughts as James and John. God, come burn it down. I've had that thought. Just come. Exercise judgment. This is getting too out of control. We too can get so caught up in our desire for divine judgment that it becomes a distraction to our mission as well. So when the Lord puts a, a Samaritan in your path, remember you are a merciful messenger. Share your life. Share the gospel. Our mission is not to call down fire on our culture, but to run into the fire with the message that saves sinners. Seek to build relationship with that coworker of yours who has a completely different worldview. Don't avoid certain places because you know people of a certain sort will be there, but intentionally go to them. There is a cost to this call, though, so let's consider that. As we, as we share this message and our lives with people, many will reject us or reject our message or both, and we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. If Jesus was rejected, we will be as well. To associate ourselves with Jesus means we too will be rejected by many in the world, sometimes even our own families. I wonder how many of you in here, your parents don't talk to you or don't talk to you as much because of your association with Jesus Christ. That's common for Muslims who come to Christianity. Or how many of you have lost friendships and jobs and opportunities simply because you're a Christian. If you haven't, that may be coming in your future, in our culture. Our intimate connection to Jesus and the message we preach is offensive, it's awkward, confusing to many, and we shouldn't be surprised if people reject us and our message and our Messiah. So that's the call and the cost of the first passage. Let's look at the call and the cost of this second passage, verses 57 through 62. We'll look at these interactions with these three would-be followers, and then we'll zoom out, and we'll again consider the call and cost. So here in this scene, we see Jesus interact with three people, teaching them and us the cost of discipleship, what it means to follow him. And in this section, the cost and the call are, are completely married. We can't divorce them. It's good to remember Jesus' earlier teaching that to follow him means to take up our cross daily and follow him. And here are some practical examples of what it might look like for one of these would-be followers to take up their cross. So the first interaction we read in verses 57 and 58 
It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus wants this person to know that to follow him means that in his case, he will be homeless. He tells him that the foxes and the birds have homes, but that he doesn't. To follow Jesus won't be a comfortable, cushy life. And for this guy, it would mean sleeping outside often and otherwise depending on the hospitality of strangers. His second interaction we read in verses 59 through 60. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now this would-be follower is invited to follow Jesus, but he feels there's something more important to do first. And it's not a crazy request. It's reasonable, especially considering the importance of burial in Jewish culture and the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother. He wants to go bury his father. Now there's a little bit of debate on what that means. Some think it means that his father has already died and he just wants to go attend the funeral and then follow Jesus, which in their culture was more than just an afternoon. But others think that it may be that his father has not yet died, but he, he's in the process. He's really old and he's going to die soon. So this man wants to go back home, wait till his father dies, complete the funeral process, and then follow Jesus. But here's the thing. Either way, this man wants to delay following Jesus. And he thinks there's something more pressing, more important to do before he starts following Jesus. And Jesus makes a strong rhetorical response. Verse 60. And Jesus said to him, Let the, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is a strong and surprising response from Jesus, but he's making a powerful point. He obviously doesn't mean that dead people can marry this guy's dad. Mary. Did I say Mary? Barry. Bury this guy's dad. I believe Jesus is referring to spiritually dead people. Spiritually dead people don't have kingdom commitments. So Jesus' point is to let those who aren't a part of this kingdom mission bury his father and that he should wholeheartedly be devoted to proclaiming the kingdom of God, to following Jesus right then and there and going on this proclamation mission. In essence, even the best excuse to delay following Jesus isn't accepted by Jesus. One commentator said it like this, the ability to set priorities that go beyond the Ten Commandments may suggest the presence of messianic authority. The new Moses has come. Following Jesus is top priority. So let's look at the final interaction, verses 61 and 62. Yet another said... <clears throat> I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here, another potential volunteer, a follower, volunteers to follow Jesus, but he gives a reason why he too must delay following, but for what seems like another legitimate reason. He wants to say goodbye to his family, which has Old Testament precedent as well. 
when Elijah calls Elisha to follow him, Elisha asks if he can go and say goodbye to his family. And Elijah says, yes, you can go. But Jesus answers this guy's question yet again with rhetorical clarity. And here it seems Jesus' answer is more of a warning than a complete refusal. He's teaching that commitment to him must be total, first, and constant. Maybe Jesus knows something we don't know about this man. Maybe he's tapped into his omniscience, kind of like he did with the rich young ruler. Maybe Jesus knows this guy's heart would be divided between prioritizing his family and prioritizing the kingdom of God, that he would be tempted to look back to his family and forsake following Jesus. There are warnings throughout the Bible not to look back. The nation of Israel looked back after the exodus. Lot's wife looked back after barely escaping Sodom. Judas Iscariot looked back to his old life and his love of money. And it didn't end well for any of those three examples. Jesus was calling this man to commit to following him totally and forsake any other attachment as more important than his attachment to Jesus. We also see this in the story of Elijah and Elisha. After Elijah does say goodbye, it says before that that he was plowing a field with 12 yoke of oxen. So that means he was probably a pretty wealthy guy. He says bye to his parents, takes the yoke off, burns it, sacrifices all the oxen, feeds his town with the food, with the oxen, and goes to follow Elijah. He burns everything that would allow him to come back to, to his previous life. And that's what this guy and we are called to as well. Jesus uses this agricultural metaphor to make the point. If you're plowing a field, you can't look backwards. Otherwise, you're not going to plow a straight line. And that's not good plowing, duh. And I'm not a farmer. I'm a city boy, but I know that. In the same way, we can't start following Jesus only to look back and to renounce him. We must hold fast to our confession. We must keep following. Yes, we believe once saved, always saved, the perseverance of the saints, but that doesn't mean you sit on your couch like a couch potato and do nothing. You must keep following. You must keep your eyes on Jesus. The call in this scene is to follow Jesus in total commitment to him and to his kingdom. It's a radical reprioritization of our thoughts, wills, and emotions. We live for him. We love him most. Nothing can be with him or over him in terms of our priorities. We will see a re reiteration of this point in Luke 14 when Jesus uses hyperbole again to say that our love for and priority of following him will make it look like we hate our parents compared to how much we love him and prioritize him. The highest priority for the follower of Jesus is God's kingdom, and there is no good reason to delay following him. Kids in here, listen to me. You kids in here, listen. Stop coloring for a second. Thank you. Good job. A lot of you are growing up with Christian parents. You come to church every Sunday. You come to community group. I did too when I was a kid. And I had this thought, well, I'll take it more seriously when I get older. 
Like, I know mom and dad, like, like taking Jesus seriously is for adults, or at least like older teenagers. And I want to encourage you guys, don't delay following Jesus. That's what his word says. And just because you're a kid, you can follow him really passionately and really truly. Talk to your parents after church about what it means to follow Jesus. And if you want to follow Jesus, not just because mom and dad are, but because you want to. Don't delay. Take him seriously today. The cost is related. To be totally committed to following Jesus, it will cost us something. It will cost us a lot. It'll be really hard. It'll impact our relationships, priorities, and the amount of comfort we experience in this life. With a great call comes a great cost and a greater reward. If you're with us this morning and you don't follow Jesus, I offer him to you. There's joy, there's blessing when you repent of your sins and believe in him. Your sins are forgiven, you're reconciled to God. You experience joy and blessing in this life and in the life to come, perfect joy and perfect blessing with no suffering or trials. But I wanna tell you, there's a cost. Count the cost this morning if you're not a Christian. It's hard, and I would actually say I think it's harder than not following Jesus. Christians, we know this. Following Jesus will mean fighting your sin every day, which is completely exhausting some days. When you see what's in your heart and you're like, this is gross. I can't believe I call myself a Christian. It may mean leaving your home and your culture to bring the gospel to an unreached people group, like we've seen David and Nicole do. It may mean missing a loved one's funeral, or it may mean doing everything you have to, spending money you feel like you don't have to fly across the country to attend the funeral so you can share your life in the gospel. It may mean having uncomfortable conversations with coworkers, bosses, neighbors, pursuing those relationships at the cost of potential rejection. It will mean following him wherever he calls you to go and prioritizing him above everything. But remember, dear saints, the cost is worth it. The cost is infinitely and incredibly worth it. At the high school retreat this past year, we had a guest speaker and his main point for all of his messages was this. You'll do anything for the one you love the most. And when we love King Jesus the most, no cost is too great. We will do anything for him. But the gospel salve is sweet here. The cost that Christ paid was greater than any cost that we will ever have to pay, even if we pay with our lives. His face was set. He died on a cross on Calvary's hill. He took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. The cost we pay to follow him is a joyful response to the cost he paid to save and reconcile us. There is no cost for us to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Christ paid it all. 
and we enter his kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. The cost for us comes as we follow Jesus, after we've been given salvation, but as we follow him. There is a cost to being one of his disciples, but there is great reward in this life and the next. As I've said, we get joy, blessing, hope, purpose, an intimate walk with the living God in the here and now with trials and sufferings and deep costs. But someday, life in the perfect kingdom of God that we've seen glimpses of in chapters one through nine, no more sin, no more sickness, seeing the triune God face to face. So dear saints, whatever cost you endure on your path of joyful obedience will in the end not even be worth comparing with the glory that will have been revealed to you. The call of Christ to follow him with total commitment will come with a great cost and a greater reward. Let's pray. We praise you, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you for who you are and for what you've done, that your plan from eternity past was to send the Lord Jesus Christ to live perfectly, to die horribly, to raise triumphantly, to ascend back to heaven. And Lord, we know that because we have been reconciled and Christ has paid the cost for us, we joyfully embrace any cost it takes to follow you. There's no cost too high. I pray you'd help us walk in that, Lord, that we would go to our Samaritans as merciful messengers, sharing our lives in the gospel, that we would joyfully embrace any suffering, the loss of jobs, the loss of friendship, and the loss of family, because of our attachment to you joyfully. You are worth it. You are worthy of it all. And we pray, Lord, that you would do everything to glorify your name through us as individuals and through Windsor Community Church. We love you and praise you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.